Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show, the last show before Canada Day or Dominion Day, as the old-fashioned among us like to call it still. We thought we'd do something on this show with the holiday upon us, a little bit different from what we normally do, and it's a bit of a follow-up from a discussion we had last week with Mark Milkey, who's the editor of a great new book called The 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled. We had such a great time with Mark, we thought it would be really lovely to go into a bit more depth about the landscape in Canada, looking at uh, history and, uh, of course, contemporary issues as well. And really that fundamental idea that Canada is a country worth celebrating. So uh, we brought Mark back, but we also have two of the contributors from this uh, great anthology of essays. One of them is Dr. Lynn McDonald, who is a professor emerita of sociology at the University of Guelph and a former member of parliament. We also have Dr. Rima Azar, who is an associate professor of psychology at Mount Allison University. And of course, Dr. Mark Milkey, the editor of this and and the publisher as well. He is the president of the Aristotle Foundation. It's wonderful to have all three of you here joining us. And thank you so much for your wonderful contributions to this. Uh, Let me begin with you, if I can, Lynn, because there has been oftentimes in the discourse about Canadian history and whether we need to cancel it and cancel historic figures, what has appeared to be a, a left-right fault line politically. And, and your contribution is fascinating. You have a, a great chapter about Egerton Ryerson, but it, I think it's particularly noteworthy that you're a former New Democrat member of Parliament. And, and I think in the current political uh, context, it's often people on the left that it looks like, from my vantage point, are the ones leading the charge to cancel historic figures. And I was just wondering how you view that political dynamic. Well, you're right. And it's very embarrassing for somebody on the left, which I still am, to see people whose other views I respect and share uh, to have dumped on the bandwagon, to have been uncritical. Uh, I'm not a historian by background, but I've basically become a historian, having worked on Florence Nightingale in the 19th century, a period that overlapped with Ryerson. So when the uh, move came against Ryerson, and it was, you know, I think the move against Ryerson was all parties, but... Um, uh, generally speaking, that's true for the people who are in Mark Milkey's book, and I was very pleased to be invited into it. But I'm just constantly embarrassed by my, you know, by colleagues who just get it wrong. They just don't seem to care about facts. I'm a fact person. I'm a content person, and I do the reading. Yeah, and, and in the case of Ryerson in particular, here's a guy who is responsible in, in large ways, as Mark and I were talking about a bit last week, for public education in Ontario, which is, again, something that uh, is pretty widely accepted and, and widely regarded among uh, people in all parties, but, but certainly people on the left should be celebrating that. So what is it that you think makes it so difficult for them to overlook uh, these things, to, to focus only on the negatives? What? What they don't, they don't understand history at all. What Ryerson did was revolutionary at the time. Now, she himself had trouble with political parties. And so she was, was well connected with Mr. John A. Macdonald before he became Sir John A. in 1867. In effect, John A. Macdonald was his boss when Ryerson was a civil servant. He couldn't get anything through without persuading people. So he had to pay, persuade people of, of any party, and he did. And what he did in Ontario was revolutionary. It influenced the education systems for the rest of the country, and it even influenced the 
uh, education system in the UK. And it was, as you say, you can't put a party label on him, but he was, well, possibly a very progressive conservative. He certainly was a, con he, he certainly wanted a substantial public sector. Uh, there should be a free public education system. We don't understand that now. He didn't have a boss as minister of education. There was no minister of education. Uh, he eventually, his position became deputy minister of education. But at the time, education was entirely private. If you could pay for it, you got it. But he was a person who saw the, uh, a, an important role for the public sector. And uh, like Tommy Douglas did on health care. Uh, but uh, uh, people get it in the NDP about Tommy Douglas, but they don't seem to get it about Edgerton Ryerson. I'll go to you uh, on this, Reem. I, I know that your chapter focuses on identity politics, so not Canadian history uh, per se, and you, you look at your experiences from, from Lebanon and, and how they relate to the uh, Canadian uh, trends and, and the Western trends we're seeing on this. But But I'll ask you in that similar vein about the left-right issue here. Do you view the identity politics issue as being a, a left-right one, or do you think it's more broader than that? Do you think it's broader than that? Thank you. I, uh, I would like to salute what Dr. McDonald said about the facts, reminding us of that. And to answer you, I denounce identity politics. It doesn't matter from which side it's coming, left or right. Right now, it's the left. It's the radical left. But maybe in the future, it may be coming um, uh, as a, I don't know, response or a shift from, from the right, from the maybe the true left, um, sorry, far right, not the far right that they accused us of when we are expressing our opinions or, or questioning things. So uh, to answer your question, identity politics as a principle is dangerous. And history has shown us that Lebanon is um, as a school in itself not just for, for my birth country, but for the whole world, not to do what, what Lebanon sadly has gone through. Civil well, war, right? One of the things that I, I, not in Lebanon specifically necessarily, but in other Middle Eastern countries that we see when there is a dramatic regime change or a revolution, one of the first things we see images of are, are tearing down the monuments to whatever was there before. And, you know, in some cases it may be a figure that, shouldn't have a monument. In other cases, it's churches that are thousands of years old that have withstood uh, wars and conquests but can't withstand this. So how do you feel when you see similar trends in, in Canada, people that have this same level of destructiveness that is the very worst trait we see in, in some other parts of the world? Deeply sad, uh, shocked. Uh, um, that's unacceptable, regardless of the figure. So imagine the, the, what we call the fathers of Canada. That's kind of insulting to the collective memory, right? But even if we forget that, and even if some uh, historic figures are uh, controversial through the eyes, of the lens, our lens right now, I think we should remember that they are the men of the past, that their times, they are not the men of today or, or tomorrow. So remember the context. And burning churches or temples or synagogues or, or, or mosques or anything like that is a no-no. Um, I just a story for you. Someone from Lebanon once uh, wanting to immigrate here contacted me asking, is it true that in Canada we are burning churches? They got scared, imagine. Let me ask you, Mark, about how we weave this all together. Because, you know, there was a time when being Canadian 
uh, up until even a few years ago, was a very unifying thing for people in Canada and people who had been born here, people who had emigrated uh, to Canada, people who were new citizens, people who were permanent residents. It used to be very unifying. And obviously a lot has changed politically in the last few years in this country as it has elsewhere in the world. But now we have strange CBC articles about how the Canadian flag is a far-right symbol to some people. And we have uh, people that are, you know, on Parliament Hill saying we need to lower the Canadian flag to half-mast for uh, the better part of, of half a year. And and as I mentioned when you and I spoke last week, the idea of celebrating Canada is, is perhaps not controversial to the population as a whole, uh, but certainly in some segments of it is... is not going to be well received. So uh, where do you take this? Where do you take all of these things that we're talking about now and, and try to put that positive stake in the ground? Well, there are a number of things happening, I think. One is I mean, we, we should dispense with party politics because, frankly, political parties and politicians are always at the end of an ideas dream, so to speak, right? Ideas uh, affect culture and culture affects politics. That's, that's the order of how it goes. So when a chunk of the population... Uh, looks back and has a simplistic view of history, a utopian view of history, um, where, where they see people in the 19th century and go, well, they weren't perfect or they had ideas different than ours. Well, well no kidding. Um, and also the imperfections. What they, what they do is they look at history as uh, wrongly um, in this sense, rather than looking at history as an oak tree where, you know, you get this wonderful country that grows up over decades and, and centuries and civilization sometimes in the case of, in the case of civilization millennia, um, where you prune branches, you try and make it better if you're interested in, say, you know, uh, a free and flourishing society, and especially you know, as we've known in the Anglosphere. Uh, we have people today that, that see a flaw in history and a flawed limb on the tree, and rather than just cut off the limb, which has already been done historically, we gave women the vote in the 1910s, we restored the vote to indigenous people that never should have been taken away in 1960, and so on and so forth. Rather than look at the oak tree as a project that shelters people over the decades and centuries, you have people that see a flaw in history or now and want to take it down. And I think actually the rise of social media and internet exacerbates this. I mean, think about this. Um, 50 years ago, if you wanted to keep something in the headlines continually, think about the Watergate scandal, right? Um, the three major networks and newspapers had to be on that day after day after day. That's how you kept something in the public consciousness. These days, with the rise of the internet, you can take an event from 1,000 years ago or 500 years ago, and you read about it, or someone creates a video about it, and it seems real today, and you feel bad for the victims, as you should. But here's the thing. The victims and the oppressors are long dead. And if you bring that into the present and you make simplistic connections, as people do, and say, well, what happened 150 years ago affects outcomes today, as people often do. Uh, Bill Clinton once blamed 9-11 partly on the Crusades. But of course, the Crusades didn't exist in isolation. You know, there was the Moors attacking the Christians, the Christians attacking the Moors, the Crusades came in that chain of things. Um, but Bill Clinton was simplistic. Link, it was ridiculous. The, the, the Crusades had been forgotten by the mid-19th century until anti-colonialists brought it up again in the mid-19th century uh, you know, as one way to get rid of colonialists. 
Um, so, you know, the simplistic connection of terrible events in history that somehow affect us yet, yes, yet today. Uh, and, and the problem is, is that's, that's really not sensible. Um, and the left-right divide, I don't think, actually matters either. And not only do the political parties not matter, I'm not sure left-right is a good way to view things mm -hmm. in most cases. The left-right continuum kind of came up, came up because of the French Revolution. You know, the conservatives were on the right, the revolutionaries were on the left. Uh, that's how this, this concept came up. But fundamentally, the problem in human history, I would argue, there's a couple of things. One, uh, people are always tribal. Um, and it took a lot to get them away from being tribal based on color or ethnicity or birth um, and get them to be tribal about good ideas, right? Open markets, the worth of the individual, the equality, the moral equality of the individual, which I think is, you know, I think it's quite clear that came from a monotheistic, you know, view and, and Judaism and Christianity in particular. Um, these, these idea developments in history, we got people away from being tribal about things that are not changeable to hopefully being tribal about good ideas, right? It's why people in Hong Kong today will still reference the British Empire, British colonial period positively because of the freedom that they were given vis-a-vis -vis now the regime in Beijing. So there's a number of things happening. Um, but basically, I think, I think the people attacking history in one sense are utopian. I think they're anti-history. Um, sorry, they're, they're, they're anti-idea and they're, they're anti-informed history. Um, and social media just exacerbates that and exacerbates the divisions. So I think somehow you need to get people to, again, think about what are good ideas. You know, if you're Indian, for example, yes, of course you didn't want to be ruled by the British, but it's a reality of history. But you can take the English language, you can take the fact the British abolished sate as good things from the British Empire and leave the rest. But again, people are not making distinctions these days. So there's a number of things going on, but I do think social media probably exacerbates the potential, the potential to be tribal in the very old-fashioned negative sense. Well, and I, I think that that's a, an important dynamic of this as far as the how and, and perhaps the why, because, you know, my, my intention was to focus on the Canadian history, but we have a, a sociologist and a psychologist on the panel, so we can perhaps dig into some of the, the pathologies of this a little bit. And I'll, I'll ask you, Lynn, where you think the motivation is behind a lot of this this cancellation because I, I think some of it is is not coming from in fact most of it I, I would argue is probably not coming from people with deep-seated principled views of history as you've indicated and understandings of history I think a lot of it is bandwagoning where where people see someone else said something bad about Ryerson so uh, well I like them so if they don't like Ryerson then I must not like Ryerson and, and no one's really critically evaluating at any step of this process why we have to cancel this figure and, and even the Canadian flag. I mean, lowering the Canadian flag to half mast uh, for, again, five months, I think it was, was a, a profoundly damaging symbol and uh, dangerous precedent, I believe. But if you're someone that is motivated to do that, it's amazing how inconsequential a gesture it really is. You're, you're saying, you know, we're, we as a country are uh, perpetuating ongoing genocide and, and all we're going to do is lower the flag. Like in that case, it's not actually achieving anything for them. So, so I'll ask you where you think this is coming from, because I, I do not believe, and you may disagree, that, that there is this deep intellectual process that's behind a lot of these efforts. Well, there certainly isn't a deep intellectual process or even elementary uh, fact-finding. I would say presentism is a big problem. There's also one-personism or culpritism. Presentism, people think of the past in terms of today. For example, Sir John A. Macdonald was racist, no doubt about it. Plenty of things were racist uh, that he said, 
and he was quite typical of his time. But that's 1885 that I'm particularly talking about Chinese exclusion. Well, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is 1948 after World War II. So between 1885, you had a World War I, you have Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, you have World War II, you have the Holocaust, and racism seems like a very bad idea then, and, and people got on to it. Incidentally, Tommy Douglas's Bill of Rights was 1947, even a year before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and Deacon Baker got in in 1960. But those were things much later. I mean, what are people going to say now? Yeah, and I think you, you raise an important point there. And I mean, gay marriage is an interesting one in Canada because uh, 20 years ago, uh, gay marriage was uh, kept illegal by a vote that involved pretty much all parties in, in Parliament. And uh, now you wouldn't find a, a single party whose members would vote as a bloc uh, in, in the same way. So things do change. Perspectives do change. And I'll go back to the, the pathology aspect of it for a moment, Rima. I know you're a psychologist. And, and when you see people that have this profound level of I mean, I don't know if guilt is the best way that this idea of national guilt or national shame, uh, what drives that? Very interesting. It's very hard to answer that question because uh, there are so many factors. Uh, there's the guilt that when we're looking at that past and uh, stories that disturb people, uh, obviously they feel they're in, in a grief somehow, or, or, or maybe uh, maybe they thought their country was perfect and they are discovering that it's like all countries in the world, it's not. So I think maybe it's good to remember that we can have mixed um, feelings um, especially in, 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 a, in a grief journey or, or a growth journey, we can have two contradictory ideas at the same time. We can uh, see someone has done some goodness, but someone could be also uh, has done some bad things at the same time, willingly or not, or depending on the context. So the nuance is missing. And I think the book, uh, Dr. Merkel's book is Mike's book. Uh, that book is amazing for the nuances. What I learned from each chapter, especially your chapter, then uh, I didn't know those details myself. Well, and to go back to the identity politics aspect, Rima, one of the things that, that is so damaging about a lot of these political discussions is that they're really aiming to divide. I, I mean, people, to, to Lynn's point, are not looking to have a, an honest discussion about this and say, how do we contextualize history? How do we understand it? What do we make of it? What's the proper role of, of us as historians, as Canadians, whatever the case is. Uh, it's about pitting people against each other and pitting groups against each other. And that is really what, in my conceptualization of it anyway, identity politics is all about. I totally agree. It's, um, it is like we have been divided now in Canada into groups and subgroups and acronyms. And we, 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 it's, it's at the same time almost funny because like, let's say myself, I should fit that acronym of BIPOC, I think it's called, or whatever acronym, you know, the, the whole long mm -hmm. thing, the black people of color. I don't know what's my color, actually. Uh, or, or, so so it's, it doesn't make any sense. How can someone with the same skin color as myself from Shikutimi be kind of similar to someone from Alberta? Like the language is not the same. The experience is not the same. We are richer than that. We are uh, human beings. We are, Each person has a combination of all the experiences and then the that parts of the identities in one person, uh, and we are um, dismissing that, uh, and that's that's sad. 
Now you're not BIPOC, Mark, so we're not allowed to take your uh, take your opinion at uh, the weight of everyone else here. But I'll ask you about that in in the realm of the Canadian story because Canada does not get enough credit for how unique it is as a national project. This idea of a, a binational, a bicultural country that uh, despite all of the tensions in the last 150 some odd years has survived is not uh, is not insignificant. And and again, John A. MacDonald, uh, who, who Lynn rightly acknowledged has skeletons in his closet, uh, it did something that was at the time very unlikely. And he held this country together truly with, I think, like duct tape and straws because Confederation was very touch and go uh, for years up to it and, and even after it. And, and the idea of, of celebrating the survival of Canada over the years is, is something that I don't feel happens enough. Well, certainly not anymore. And, you know, one of the reasons we wrote the 1867 project and Lynn contributed and Rima contributed and so did 17 other people is to try and add some nuance to history, uh, which we hope would, would give people some, um, uh, you know, modesty, so to speak, uh, that make outrageous claims. So let me give you a clear example. Um, and again, part of this goes back to uh, I mean, what you just mentioned, which is that yes, uh, you know, it was a complicated project to put Canada together in the first place. There were divisions then, they were different than today. You know, there might've been between high Anglicans and Methodists, for example, right? On the Protestant side, Catholics were seen as not worthy of joining the Canadian project because they were considered illiberal. Right. They, they thought, uh, you know, Protestants of the 19th century thought uh, Catholics would take the orders from Rome. Right. So Protestants were suspicious. I mean, there were, there were tensions back then and divisions. But uh, what managed to overcome them again was this notion of the worth of the individual. That seed was there in the 19th century. And um, but part of the problem is, you know, again, we, we divide into tribal you know, uh, we, you know we, we, we divvy off into tribes, uh, maybe almost naturally human history, and you have to consciously think, I'm gonna look at the person here, especially in law and policy, as an individual in law and policy. Governments have to do that. Um, but look, the, the other way to approach this is to tell stories, to remind people of history and hope it wakes them up. Let me give you a clear example, because the problem in, in, in again, because of this tribalism, we just think, you know, if we're at the top of the heap, so to speak, or people favor us today, then we must we must be perfect. If you go back to the 1950s and before, if you look at John Wayne movies and others, I think arguably there is a fair amount of racism there and racist assumptions. Or, you know, the indigenous person is always, you know, subservient to the you know heroic white guy. I think fairly enough, if you're indigenous and you look at that and you go, good grief, what was happening back then? But again, that was back then. Um, today, you can flip it over where people can romanticize indigenous culture. And, and frankly, both sides, if I can put it that way, and it's not a left-right thing, it's a tribal thing. Both sides, you know, miss the point, which Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous Soviet dissident, um, talked about or wrote about in the Gulag Archipelago. When he was a prisoner in the Gulag, there were people then, as before, um, that looked at other groups and said, well, if we get rid of them, they're the problem, we'll have a good society. And Solzhenitsyn wisely understood and articulated this point. The dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. If you understand that, and you understand the dangers of tribalism, at least based on unchangeable characteristics as opposed to ideas, but even perhaps ideas, the Nazis had bad ideas and plenty of people were tribal about that. But if you understand Solzhenitsyn's point, then it should bring a bit of modesty. But then you also have to be honest about your own, so to speak, history. And again, I, I don't think we have to attach ourselves to one's own ethnic history. My background is German. 
I wouldn't take anything from Germany's governance over the last two centuries or five centuries. I much prefer the Anglosphere model of the focus on the individual and the rule of law and free markets and free expression and so forth. So you can detach yourself from your ethnic or colored history, you know, your, your, the, you know, the color of your skin and the history that some people will attribute to that as if everyone had the same history. Um, but it also helps out to bring other stories. One of my favorite stories about mid-century British Columbia from the 19th century is how 30 black Californians moved to Victoria in 1858. And remember that California at this point is very prejudiced. It's not part of the South, but it might as well be. American states, uh, even in the North and even in the West, are very prejudiced against black Americans. 30 black Americans move up to Victoria. They are welcomed by the Archbishop of, uh, of Victoria. They are welcomed by Governor James Douglas. And um, they're able to become citizens after two years. They can run for city council, for the school board. They encounter some prejudice. It happens to be up island from an, ind an indigenous First Nation, the Cowichan. Uh, now, I say that, uh, and, and the indigenous in British Columbia had slaves in the late 19th, late 19th century, which the British colonialists were trying to abolish, the practice of slavery. I say that because, again, back to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the dividing line between good and evil is not between um, your tribe and my tribe, it's again in every human heart and every human civilization has a mixture of both usually. And so if you recognize that, then you become more modest. Whites should have been more modest about um, and recognize their own evil in racism uh, before they did. And in, again, movies of the 1940s, and 1950s and before. Um, you know, but I think there's a temptation to, to today because of, you know, the past abuse of indigenous peoples to now romanticize indigenous history, which overlooks the Aztecs or overlooks indigenous slavery. And I only bring up these points not to beat up on indigenous history, but to simply say, again, everyone is part of the same human project. And if you make the mistake of thinking your group, if only you ran things, um, you know, that's the temptation of power. And um, I got to tell you, the temptation of power uh, you know, is, is intoxicating, but it makes you think you're perfect. None of us are. There is a difference between recognizing history and historic figures and, and venerating historic figures. And, and this is often, I, I find, where the debate gets a little bit tricky because it's one thing to say, yes, we are not going to cancel this person. We're not going to rip them out of the history books, but we'll, we'll talk about the bad and the good. And, you know, we'll, we'll cast everyone as a complicated figure with a dark side and, and a bright side. And I'll, I'll ask you about this, Lynn. I mean, there are lots of examples of this. You mentioned Tommy Douglas earlier. He once called homosexuality a, a mental illness, but again, was the father of Medicare, which has been a very central part part of Canadian identity for, for a lot of people. And you look at Nellie McClung, you know, one of the most prominent, the most prominent suffragette, suffragette in Canada, and she at, was an advocate for eugenics. So these, these, are, not, uh, these are not unknown things. Uh, you could find it with everyone, whether you want to talk about John A. Macdonald, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, and, and so on. So how do you think, or what is the lens you think we need to take to these figures where, uh, do you think we should just say, you know what, the good outweighs the bad, we're going to celebrate them? Or do you think we need to approach with a bit of a less celebratory attitude to these people, even if they had tremendous achievements? I think we have to uh, take each one into account on their merits and demerits. Now, I particularly worked on Ryerson and to some extent on Henry Dundas, and they are both people uh, for whom the current record is dead wrong. They got it exactly the opposite. 
In the case of Ryerson, he was a friend of indigenous people. He learned to speak Ojibwe. He was named a brother and given an Ojibwe name. And yet he's treated as the architect of the residential school system. He was branded that way. And a plaque is put up next to a statue, supposedly to contextualize uh, what he did. It didn't contextualize. It added fresh, uh, fresh accusations and did a, an extraordinary thing of argument by splicing. And so put next to him the horrible things that happened in residential schools as if he were responsible for them. And that's true for uh, Henry Dundas. It's a current issue in Toronto because city council a couple of years ago voted to get rid of the Dundas name on the grounds that he delayed the abolition of slavery, which he did not do. He was a committed and effective abolitionist and is going to go back uh, to uh, city council. There's a mayor's race on and so forth. And yet he... At his merits as an abolitionist are very strong. He got rid, as a lawyer, got rid of slavery in Scotland by arguing a case before the law lords of a runaway slave. And so he did excellent things. And the, the arguments used against him for abolit, for delaying the abolition, people don't make the distinction between emotion in the House of Commons and getting a bill through. You don't have a law to do anything until it goes through the House of Lords as well. So that just the level, the level of incompetence on this is really quite shocking. I think you have to look at them one at a time. Sir John A. Macdonald, he wasn't racist, but you, it can be contextualized. You look at the context and you look at the time, that's quite fair. He made enormous uh, 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 contributions to getting French and English, Francophone and Anglophone together, and Catholic and Protestant. Just an enormous contribution there. Uh, and so you really have to look at them case by case. I know you've gone through this in, in your own uh, ordeal, Rima, which, you know, at True North we, we've covered, and uh, we, we don't have time to rehash it in full here. But the one thing that, that you know and, and we can observe here is that once the mob or the class that is driving the mob has decided that someone is a bad person, the facts don't seem to matter. And, and you see exactly what Lynn just described there. Once we've decided that this is our objective, we'll get there however we want to get there. Yes. Uh, did I miss the question? Was well, question? I, I, I didn't really ask one, but I'll, I'll, oh. I'll, I'll, I'll add a, a question there, which, which is just, how do we combat that? I mean, how do you, how do you make a, a, an assertion of truth when there are so many people that don't seem to care about truth in these dis discussions? I think coming back to the start of our conversation with the facts that Dr. McDonald or Lynn said that the facts are important the truth, seeking the truth. We are scientists. We we we're, we're, we do research to. We have hypotheses. We want to test them. Uh, so coming back to facts, but also denouncing uh, censorship when it's uh, toward anyone, people mm -hmm. we don't agree with before those whom we agree with as a principle. Same thing for violence. So like um, like status um, being torn down. That's a no no. It's that's vandalism. Or, or uh, buildings like churches, not any building, it's a church. Uh, uh, some people escaped. I remember a story in Canada, escaped from Egypt, I think, a Coptic church. And to see their church here in Canada being uh, vandalized. Um, again, the emotions and again, we, we, the guilt and all this, I, we understand that. But uh, some things are just unacceptable and we need... We, we should avoid the double standards as, as much as possible, I think. 
That's a very, very eloquent way of, of putting it. Uh, because it is Canada Day tomorrow, or again, Dominion Day, I, I have to just always stick that in anytime I say Canada Day, I am uh, going to ask everyone on the panel uh, a question which will be easier for the, the latter two because you'll have a couple of moments to think about it here. We'll start with you, Mark. Uh, what's one thing you absolutely love about this country? Well, I love, I love its natural beauty. So I live near the Rocky Mountains, and for whatever reason, there, there's a combination of, you know, when, when you get out into the Rockies and do some hiking, for me anyway, you feel Canadian, uh, because it's just, you take a deep breath, you look at the grandeur of this country, and you think, yes, uh, this is worth celebrating. So we can get all philosophical as I do, and celebrate the, you know, the achievements of, of various people in its history and how we've built this massive oak tree that shelters tens of millions of people beneath it now and has for a very long time. But there's something about the nature of Canada that, that just uh, fills me up with, with pride and awe. All right. Well, that is a uh, lovely answer. And yes, nothing like that uh, mountain air, despite the, uh, the weather in your province uh, some, some of the year. Uh, Lynn, what, what would yours be? What's something you love about Canada? Okay. Well, I won't go on about canoe trips, but I, I do share what Mark was saying. I would say that as a Canadian and a Canadian woman, and we, after all, we were brought up to be inferior to the guys, uh, I went off from having uh, gone to UBC, uh, having grown up in U.S. Minister, British Columbia, and I went off to do my PhD at the London School of Economics, kind of the capital of the world, London. And I felt perfectly confident. You know, I was a Canadian. This is London. Well, you know, I'm here. And uh, I can cope with it all. I thought that I had a good background by being a Canadian. All right, wonderful. And we'll give you the last word, Rima. I will add to what uh, both of the speakers have said. The winter, I love winter, but also definitely that uh, men and women are equal. We have a rule of law. Hopefully we'll keep having it for everyone. And, and uh, uh, you know, all, all what is Canadian in that sense. And the kindness of people, we're so kind to the point that we think we're the worst races of the world, I think. Well, that is a, a lovely, lovely note on which to end. Uh, thank you all of you for uh, coming on and for sharing your stories in this uh, wonderful new book, The 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled. You can get that on Amazon, published by the Aristotle Foundation. Mark Milkey, uh, Rima Azar, and Lynn McDonald. Do hold on just a moment once we wrap, but thank you so much. We will talk to you all next week on The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and happy Canada Day. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.